I think that song is a perfect way for us to kick off this series for ATX. Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, has said that that song really happened almost by accident. They were in the recording studio working on an album, and they took a break late one night and walked outside into the English countryside. And he said, when we looked up, the stars were just magnificent against the night sky. And I just thought, just thought yellow with, with the light on the stars coming out. And he said that, that, that idea of the stars and the light, the, the word yellow, he said it represents hope and devotion and love. And, and I thought, man, wouldn't that be awesome if that's what our church was known for, was hope and devotion and love and light. When you think about the words of Jesus when he said that the family of faith is to be a light in the world, that we're to be a city on a hill that can't be hidden. I just thought that's a, that's a perfect, perfect way. And, I, and our band came up with that idea, and it was just a great, great introduction to where we're going and where we are. I also think it's particularly poignant and timely in, in light of this past week. I, I couldn't help but think on Wednesday morning that, that somehow we, we kind of lost a little bit of our light. You know, he hadn't preached... A, a sermon or, or much less a revival or a crusade for years. But when Billy Graham finally went home this week at 99 years old, there, there was something inside. I was just kind of, man, that's, that's a loss for us who are the people of Christ, who are the, the body of Christ. And, and his life and his legacy is, is an amazing, amazing thing. He, he preached to over 200 million people the gospel of Jesus Christ in over 180 different countries around the world. His ministry spanned 65 years and there was never a whiff of scandal or impropriety of any kind. He was a friend and a counselor to to presidents from Eisenhower through Obama. He was a friend and a confidant to Queen Elizabeth of England. President Reagan awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Queen Elizabeth made him an honorary knight of the British. I mean, that, that's an amazing, amazing track record. Now, by no means was he perfect. He, by his own admission, he was away from home far too often for his family's good. It was a price and a cost to them because he was traveling so much throughout his ministry. His, his wife, Ruth, is rightly credited with a lot of the integrity and the presence of Billy Graham's ministry across the years because of her presence in his life. This, this amazing woman of beautiful power that was always there and always holding down the fort back home. You know, late in their lives together, Ruth was asked by a reporter if she had ever considered divorce. And without skipping a beat, she quipped, Divorce never, murder often. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. And, you know, it was, it was that commitment to one another. They were only married for 63 years and 10 months, you know, and, until she passed away in 2007. But there was something, there was something about Billy and Ruth Graham and the life that they lived and the ministry that they led there was something about their, their steadfastness over the years that was attractive and it was appealing. There was something about that, that devotion across generations. And as we considered his life in light of his passing this week, 
The reality is none of us will ever drift into a life like that. You you don't just kind of wake up one day and have that kind of impact and influence in the world. But I wonder this morning, what would you say if I made the statement to you, let's say that we were just sitting down one-on-one over a cup of espresso, what if I told you that God created every single one of us to live a life of exactly that kind of eternal impact and influence, that you were supposed to have that, I was supposed to have that, that all God's chilling are here to make a difference that literally touches eternity. Now, now, the reality is most of us will, will never be friend to presidents and royalty or you know, preach to stadiums full of people or have our messages beamed around the globe across a satellite. But the fact of the matter is that every single one of us is absolutely created in the image of God on purpose, with a purpose. And it's this, this idea that is the central tenet and the foundation of the series we kick off today as a church family for ATX, that that there's something bubbling up inside of every single one of us that that God wants to use not just within us, but then to radiate out of our lives and and to impact, first of all, the the people closest to us, our families, to make a difference, to add value to our homes, but also in our schools, when we go to play, when we go to work, wherever we may be, that there's this reality of a calling on your life and on my life that God wants to use to literally change the world for the better. That's true for you. That's true for me. I want you to tell your neighbor right now like you mean it. That's true for you. Now, the fact of the matter is none of us, like Billy Graham, like Ruth Graham, or anyone else that you could think of who has had an eternal impact, none of us will drift into that kind of impact and influence. It doesn't just happen. There are absolutely choices we make, actions that we take, that lead us into that calling that God has. Not only in our lives personally, but also collectively as a church family. If you've been around here any amount of time at all, you know that the reason Lake Hills Church exists is actually on the wall that you walk right by on the way in. We're here to grow the community of Christ one life at a time. That's the reason we get up in the morning. It's why we do everything that we do. It's why we gather together and worship collectively as a family once a week. It's, it's why our, our worship team works as hard as they do, not only to lead us in worship, but also to take songs that, that maybe have been intended for world consumption, but also to bring to bear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to show people that all roads lead to the cross. It's why we have groups and Bible studies where people feed on the Word of God so that they can spiritually metabolize it and then live it out. It's why we do LAC Kids and LAC Students. It's why we do Fearless Mom. It's why we do Spur Leadership. It's why we pray that God would use us. It's why we tithe and we give financially to fuel the ministry as a church family because our motivation the driving force in our lives collectively is to see one more person experience the extravagant love and amazing grace of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we're here. 
And everything that we're about runs through that filter. And so over the next few weeks, as we gear up, as we kind of put the hammer down heading into Easter, did you realize that Easter today is five weeks away? We just finished Valentine's Day. How is that even possible? Easter, the Super Bowl, the reason for the hope that we have is five weeks from today. And so over the next few weeks as a church, we're going to refocus our our prayers. We're going to refocus our, our study and our time together on this calling that God has for us collectively, but also this calling that God has for us individually and how those two things work together and intersect in his amazing grace and supernatural wisdom to move his purposes forward in this world. Now to do this, we're going to look at the idea of a calling or, or a, a vision and a purpose through the lens of a fascinating guy by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the most fascinating characters in all of Scripture. He actually he gets a book in the Bible. There are only 66 books in the whole Bible, and Nehemiah gets one of them. If you've got your Bibles with you, either like in a book or on your phone, look at Nehemiah chapter number 1. Now, there's a little bit of background that we're going to have to to cover today just to kind of provide some context to the story of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah gives us a, a historical narrative of a particular moment in the life of God's chosen people, Israel. And it's a powerful moment through a powerful person. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Everybody say Susa. Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just, just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is an Israelite. He, he is a Jew, one of, one of God's chosen people. But at this time, he's living in the town of Susa. Susa was the, the fortress capital of the Persian Empire. King Artaxerxes was the king of Persia, the most powerful person on the planet during this period. And Susa was a, was a fortress citadel where Artaxerxes had his palace. Now, here's the background. Now, track with me for just a quick second, okay? Remember, Israel was initially called out by God all the way back with Abraham. Abraham, God told Abraham, he would be a father of a great nation. Abraham is going to be roughly 2,000 years before Jesus' time, okay? So Abraham's called out. He's an old man, he and Sarah. God says, you're going to be a great nation. Abraham's like, "Uh, awesome, we don't have any kids, and I'm 100 years old. God says, I got you. No Viagra, no problem. Watch this happen. All of a sudden, Sarah has a baby, Isaac, Isaac. Jacob, and the patriarchal family of Israel begins to take root. The family then grows into a great nation, the nation of Israel. Israel is taken captive in Egyptian slavery for a little over 450 years. Then Moses shows up. God frees Israel through Moses' leadership, says, I will now deliver you to the promised land that I promised to Abram, 
who became Abraham. They then wander through the wilderness for 40 years for a whole host of reasons. And then through Joshua, who succeeded Moses, Israel takes occupancy in the promised land. Now, it was through this historical narrative that God is weaving his purposes and his patterns into the nation of Israel. And it was King David who established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It was King David who built his palace in Jerusalem. It was King David's son Solomon who then built the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem for the Jew, for the Israelite mindset, both in Nehemiah's day and even today, Jerusalem is the epicenter of their identity. Their identity spiritually, their identity socially, their identity historically. It is all about Jerusalem, specifically the temple, but Jerusalem at large. And so when Hanani shows up in this period of captivity over in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, the first thing that Nehemiah asks him is, how's Jerusalem? How are things going back home? And, And Hanani tells him it's not good. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem remains in ruins because throughout Israel's history, they had a tendency to be faithful to God for a little while, but then to revolt, then to defy and defile their covenant relationship with God, at which point God would allow them to be disciplined like a loving father. And in certain instances, he allowed them to be taken into captivity as slaves to remind them of where their allegiances really lie. And then after a period of captivity and enslavement, they would be like, oh yeah, God, I remember. Now, it's easy for us to look at Israel and go, they're so stupid. But how many times have I found myself in a bind of my own creation, of my own sin, and said, why did I do that? Why Why did I make that choice Why did I spend that season of my life running from God, stiff-arming God? I have been there. If you have, you don't have to raise your hand. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room. Probably there's some of you in this room thinking right now, why did I date that guy? Why? Why did I spend those years in the wilderness wandering when God was there for me the whole time? That's what Israel did over and over again. And so it's in one of these periods of captivity that Nehemiah enters the picture. And he asks his brother, Hanani, how are things in Jerusalem? He gets this report back and he says, not only does Jerusalem remain in ruins, but even the walls surrounding Jerusalem are in rubble. The gates have been burned by fire. And so for Nehemiah... This is a time, this is a, this is a crisis point. This is a, a point at which he, he literally goes to his knees in prayer. Look at how the, the verse continues in verse 4, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah writes, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess 
that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. Now, there's, there's a lot going on right here. First of all, it's important to note that Nehemiah begins this prayer with a prayer of worship. He begins by lifting up, by exalting the name of God. He says, great and mighty God, the God of unfailing love. I wonder, if you and I were in Nehemiah's sandals as a slave in a, in a foreign land, would we really start our prayers acknowledging God as a God of unfailing love? I, I feel like maybe there's a part of me, I'm not proud of this, but there's a part of me be kind of like, hey, God, psst, it's Mac. What's up? I mean, I'm, I'm in slavery over here, but Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah begins from a position of humility. He begins with a posture of worship. And he says, great and mighty God, you who are unfailing in your love. And that worship gives way to a prayer of repentance, a prayer of return. And he says, he says we're all guilty of sin. All of Israel, my family included, we have, we have turned our backs on you. Now, for me personally, there's something about this prayer that just, it's a little bit strange. Maybe it's because we're Americans, you know, America. Maybe, maybe it's because we're kind of living in the land of the, the self-made man and the self-made woman. But, but Nehemiah is doing something really, really interesting here. He so identifies with Israel. As, as a child of God, the chosen people of God, he so identifies with them that he's even willing to share in the blame for their sin. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to let you keep your sin over there. I'm going to keep my sin over here. and We'll just kind of deal with it individually. But Nehemiah's not doing that. Nehemiah says, no, 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 no. We're, we're all in this together. We are all Israel. We are all the children of God. We're united by this calling that God has placed on us. And I want to keep my sin separate from your sin because I don't know where you've been. But but Jesus, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus prayed, God, may they be united as one. May they, the church, be one as you and I are one, Jesus said. So all of a sudden, what happens to you matters to me. What, what happens to me matters to you. If you grieve, then, man, I'm going to grieve with you. If you celebrate, if you experience a win, I'm going to celebrate that with you. I'm not going to look at you and go, who needs a car that expensive? I mean, I'm, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be united as one. We are together. When I was in high school, I, I played a little bit of basketball, and I, was, I wasn't the most talented on the team per se, but I loved the game. I, I loved playing. And, and we had a phenomenal coach, a guy by the name of Mike Fergus. Coach Fergus was an incredible, incredible basketball coach in mind, but also a great leader of young men and Every day at the end of practice, he would line us up on the baseline to run lines, suicides, horses, baseline free throw, back, midcourt, back, other free throw line, back. 
inline back. We call them suicides, horses, or whatever. We, we would run these, and Coach, Coach Fergus would run these, would run us through these, these sprints until we were right at the point of exhaustion. And then while all of us were, were on the baseline, kind of, you know, holding your shorts and... <sighs> we didn't, now, see, I played so long ago that... Look, see, I held my shorts right here. You should be down here. That was force of habit right there. Even, I, was, I still remember that feeling. <sighs> I, I pulled out my yearbook a few years ago to show my kids. I was like, don't look, kids, it's obscene. But anyway... <laughs> That was what we did. That was just the way it was, you know. Anyway, coach would line us up. Coach would line us up on the baseline, and we'd be sitting there, and he would say these words, pick one. Pick one. Which meant the team had to choose one guy to shoot one free throw. And if you made the free throw, we were done. If you missed the free throw, we're going to run. Yeah, that's what we said. Oh. Now, as I said, I, I was by no means the most talented guy on the team at all, but I, I could shoot. For somebody who can't run fast or jump high, you better be able to shoot free throws. And I, I could shoot. And I, I, I mean, I was, I was like, here, I, give me the rock. And here's why I wanted to go home, <laughs> I didn't want to run anymore. To this day, I, I get a little twitchy if somebody says, let's go jogging. We're like, you need counseling. <laughs> but I really appreciate the applause for that. <laughs> That's great. But as a team, as a team, Who are you going to be responsible for getting to go home? How many people are going to be in heaven because you chose to follow Christ and be a part of a, of a church family? How many people do you know by name right now who have no clue how extravagantly God loves them? Ask for the ball. Hey, do everything you can to help them go home. Billy Graham will be responsible for millions of people in heaven. Can you imagine his welcome line when he get, got to heaven Wednesday morning? Do you know how many people were standing at the gate? Bill, my boy, bruh. How many people are you taking home with you? How many people are we as a church going to help find home? Nehemiah was concerned about home. He, he was a temporary resident in Persia. That wasn't his home. That wasn't his identity as a slave. He was a child of the Most High God, and he never forgot it. He never let his circumstances dictate his identity. He remembered who he was because of who God says he was. And God says, you're a child of mine. And you have a home, and it ain't here. We're just passing through. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah was identifying. He, he felt this for, for all of Israel. And he, and he 
wept and he prayed and he mourned and he fasted. He worshiped, he confessed. But but then something fascinating happened. Look at what happens next. Verse 11. He said, Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. I mean, there is no segue in this prayer. I mean, Nehemiah shifts gears without pushing in the clutch. You you can hear the gears grinding. He's in this mourning and fasting and praying and confessing mode. And then all of a sudden he says, God, we got work to do. He says, Lord, make the king favorably disposed to me. Put it in his heart to give me royal favor. You see, God had started to stir something inside of Nehemiah. God God had started to give him a calling, a vision, a purpose for his life, and he knew that the calling was bigger than himself. He knew that he was called to a cause bigger than just Nehemiah. Now, cupbearer to the king is interesting. Don't, don't, Don't just skate by that. Cupbearer to the king meant that Nehemiah was responsible for tasting the king's wine before the king tasted it to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So the next time you're having a bad day at work, just remember, you could be Nehemiah. If you're at school this week and you're like, man, this this is a drag, well, I'm not Nehemiah. But it also meant that Nehemiah had proved himself because you didn't just give that job to a chimp. You gave the job of cupbearer to the king to somebody who had proved himself, who was faithful, who was loyal, who was good at something before that. That was a big-time job. It gave you direct access to the most powerful person on the planet. This was Nehemiah. Over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout Scripture and throughout history, God places his people exactly where he wants us for his purposes. You have a position and a place and a sphere of influence. I do. That God wants to use supernaturally to advance his purposes, to move his cause forward in this world. But you've got to be paying attention. You've got to be deliberate about it. And you ask God, God, give me favor. Ask God, go before me. Start with worship. Look at what Nehemiah did. He asked for forgiveness for the past, but then he asked for favor for the future. He he was moving forward. He didn't sit around and wallow in it. It was real. It was sincere. But he knew that there was something more that God had created him for and called him to. Billy Graham, it's a household name, isn't it? I mean, that's like saying the Pope. I know they're different, but I mean, similar awareness. Let me give you another name. This is a great name. It's a real person, actually. Mordecai Ham. 
How many of you have ever heard the name Mordecai Ham? Let me just see a show of hands. About five. Mordecai Ham was a fascinating cat. He was a traveling evangelist. He was born in 1877, and his itinerant ministry took him all across the United States. He actually spent a great deal of time here in the state of Texas. But in November of 1934, he was preaching a weeks-long revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. And on one particular night, there was a rumor that had kind of spread like wildfire throughout Charlotte, North Carolina, that there was going to be a rumble at the revival. Now, I don't care who you are, that's, that's interesting. And there were, there were two teenage boys who up to this point had resisted the revival. They were like, I'm not going over there listening to that preacher in the tent. But when they heard there was going to be a fight that night, they were there with bells on. And they, and they, they walked into the tent. And it was packed. And the reason for the rumble was that Mordecai Ham had been calling out some of the delinquent youth of Charlotte, North Carolina. He says specifically there was a house that some of the youth used across the street from the high school where they were, you know, playing pool. It was bad. And so the youth were kind of up in arms, like, who's he to call us out? We'll go over there, and we're going to disrupt the revival. And so these two teenage guys who had resisted going to the revival, they wanted to see what was going to happen. And they weren't necessarily the, the really bad kids who played pool or the really good kids who went to the revival. They were kind of in between, and they, they walked in that night, and it was packed. And they couldn't find two seats next to each other. And so they, they, they turned around to walk out of the tent. But before they could get to the exit... A very alert usher saw them. He, he had, saw them, he had saw, seen them come in and saw them turn around and start to walk out. And he said, hey, fellas, can I, can I help you? Is, is there a problem? They go, no, we just can't find seats together. And he goes, hey, I've got two right over here. I know where they are. It's what I do. Come over here. And so they went and sat down. And on that November night in 1934, under the preaching of Mordecai Ham and the leadership of an alert usher whose name is lost to history. God touched the life of a young man by the name of Billy Graham Jr. Now, now Mordecai Ham could not have known that this son of a dairy farmer was going to be in the tent that night. And the usher, as I, I've done the research, I even used Google, and you, nobody knows his name. The usher didn't necessarily know him but on that night through an alert usher and a bible beaten baptist evangelist billy graham gave his life to jesus and because of two people mordecai ham and an alert usher God used the life and the ministry of Billy Graham to reach over 200 million people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know yet how many of those 215 million people actually surrendered their lives to Christ will actually be in heaven. But it's a bunch. It's, it's, it's a bunch. 
I wonder this morning, what is it that God wants to do in your life and through your life, radiating out of who you are, to help somebody get home? To help somebody discover that they were created for more than what they're experiencing right now. To help someone discover the amazing grace of Jesus. Because whatever else we do in this life, that is our calling. That is why we're here. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And as you bow your head, I want to just put the question to you. Do you know Jesus? More specifically, are you following Jesus? And, and not to put too fine a point on it, but it's really simple. It's yes or no. If your answer is yes, then I want to just invite you to be praying with everything that you've got. But if your answer is no, it doesn't have to stay a no. In the amazing grace of God, you can, you can say yes to Jesus. You can step into that relationship with God, moving beyond a, a religion about God. You can know him. If you're here today and you want to begin that relationship, then we invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. Just in your own words, say something like this. Just say, Jesus, just silently talk to him. That's what this is all about. It's connecting with Christ. Just say, silently where you're sitting, just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness, your grace. And so I confess my sin to you. And I claim your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward. If you would, just remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for another moment. If you just prayed that prayer... This is the greatest moment of your life. And it's a moment that we as a church want to help with. And so there are a couple of things that you can do that will help us help. First of all, if you would just, even now, if that was your prayer, would you just start filling out that connect card that we mentioned earlier in the service? Just fill it out. About halfway down, you'll notice there's a place to indicate, I'm committing my life to Christ this week. When you finish filling that out, you can tear it off at the perforation and just hand it to one of our, one of our alert ushers on your way out the door. That begins a conversation that happens at your pace. 
that allows us to be a family together with you. But second of all, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just lift your hand and hold it up high over your head for just a moment. And by raising your hand, what what you're doing is you, you stamp this moment. You engrave it in your life, in your mind, in your heart, but also in the life in the heart of this church. Because that moment in your life and others like it, that's why we exist. And so, as you put your hand down, we're going to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.